Thank you for tuning in. And welcome to the second episode of the 2021 End of Summer Podcast Series, a series where I'm taking a fresh look at the seven most downloaded podcast episodes over the past year, and a series of topics that tie into a greater overall theme of issues and opportunities I see express themselves in leadership teams throughout the industry and across the country and in both smaller and larger firms. And today's episode is one I continue to get a lot of positive feedback from. Episode 29 with Tracy Eves, an experienced, very smart, and extremely well-spoken valuation expert with Zwei Group. Our focus was on how to maximize the value of your firm. And as will be the case throughout this series, the episode in its entirety will follow this fresh introduction. As I re-listened to this episode, several things stood out. Number one, understanding the financial side of what we do is something we're just not taught. And many of us can go years individually and as a leadership team, not really knowing or fully understanding the implications and the opportunities of our numbers. Our financials are not complicated. They're just foreign to us. And when we do take the time to understand them, learning how to process and analyze and ultimately leverage our numbers can be both empowering and fruitful. That said, one of the fuzziest aspects of our financial dealings is the valuation process. And in this episode, I was again impressed by Tracy's knowledge and ability to clearly articulate and explain this process and all of the factors that are considered. The second major thing that stood out again upon re-listening was that our valuation is about our future, not our past or even our present. No matter how great we are today or how good we've been in the past, if the same forces and the same energies are not going to be there moving forward, neither will be the value. And even our strategic value to an outside investor will be discounted if the prospects for future success are not reasonably assured. And this gets us to the third major standout. Our investments, our investment strategies, and our health and cohesion as a leadership team forms much of our value. What do I mean by this? If we are not actively investing in our future success, we're less likely to achieve it. And certainly very few people will write a check based on just hope. But it's not only our willingness to actively invest in our future. It's about our specific investment strategies. How specifically will we work to diversify our internal business development capabilities? How specifically will we work to diversify our client base in terms of market sector, client type, discipline, and geographic focus? And in which areas will it be best to niche? Altogether, I call this clarifying our matrix. And how specifically will we invest in the development of our people, both technically and in terms of greater management and leadership capabilities? And how will we invest in ourselves, in our leadership teams, many of whom are, quite frankly, just tired and getting less engaged themselves, which is something I personally experienced. And in the face of all of this, as Tracy explains, 
getting along as a leadership team, something that unfortunately doesn't always happen, provides real tangible value. Our cohesiveness and harmony as a leadership team, our ability to continuously support and bring out the best in each other matters. And equally important is getting and staying on the same page in terms of mission, vision, and values, and in terms of growth and what it means to achieve and sustain it. Which brings me to my final point of clarity related to this podcast episode and something I first learned when I was in practice as a principal and major owner. There's no free lunch. And no matter what our ultimate exit plan is as leaders or as a leadership team, to be a successful legacy firm or to be a coveted acquisition target, we in leadership today need to be doing the same things. And they're not always easy or have an immediate ROI. If we want successful internal ownership succession, we need to strategically invest in a future that great people want to stick around for and be a part of. If we want someone to pay us a large sum of money to be an important or strategic part of their future, we better be able to show more than just an indication we can deliver moving forward. Our numbers, our investments, and the cohesiveness and harmony of our team tell a story, a story that gets quantified in the valuation process and with all those we want to have as part of our future. As you re-listen or listen to this episode for the first time, think about the story your numbers, your investments, and your leadership team is telling. And more importantly, what story you want them to tell moving forward. We can create the future of our choosing, and better knowing our numbers is a great next step. So without any further delay, Here's episode 29 with Tracy Eaves. Thank you for tuning in. This episode can easily be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to you and your partners. The value of your firm is not an accounting exercise and it's not something we have to be at the mercy of. Instead, knowing the value of our firm can be a starting place. The valuation process in and of itself looks forward and not backwards, and done well, working through that process today can position us for much greater success moving forward. Our guest today on the podcast is Tracy Eaves, an extremely knowledgeable and insightful valuation consultant with Zwei Group, and she provides us both a crash course and a needed refresher on the business valuation process and on how that process can be used to highlight the actions we can take to maximize our future value and profitability. Also, like so many others, this episode is another great example of the benefit of the dialogue format we have here in the podcast and another one you're gonna want a notepad for. Plus, stay on after we close as Tracy and I followed on with an important discussion on the need for leadership harmony and principal engagement you're not gonna wanna miss that we made sure to splice back in. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. 
The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Tracy Eaves, a valuation consultant with Zwei Group, and we'll be talking about the world of business valuation and particularly how we can determine the tangible value of great leadership and management. Welcome to the podcast, Tracy. Hi, Pete. How are you today? I'm doing well and excited that you're on the podcast and we're going to be talking about the subject. All right. Well, let's get going. All right. Well, we just so the, the listeners know, we first met at a Zwei Group hot firm conference in Dallas a few years ago, and we stayed in touch. And, and I most recently heard you um, speak on the Zweig Letter podcast, which was great. And I'm going to put links in the show notes to that because I thought it was really great. Um, and it got me thinking of different aspects of business valuation and particularly that associated with our topic today, which is what is the value of having good leadership and management throughout the firm and how does that manifest in the numbers? But before we dive into that, um, can we start by getting to know you a little bit about you, your career um, and the types of services you provide to the AEC industry? Sure. Um, so valuation uh, work has actually uh, been a 20 year career for me uh, to date. In fact, this is my 20th year um, in, in uh, valuation work. Um, prior to that, I um, had a career with um, uh, management of small business development center programs with the Small Business Administration. Um, I actually worked um, in two different states as center director um, for a small business development center program. And what we did there is we provided um, a wide array of consulting services to existing as well as potential small business owners. Um, and it was great work. I really loved it. I met some great people and I actually found um, valuation while I was um, uh, working with my small business development center um, job. And I went to a conference, uh, saw a presentation on valuing privately held companies. I thought it was the coolest stuff I had ever been exposed to. And um, it really just set me on the path. And um, I came back from that conference and I truly did set on the path to start um, an education process with um, learning how to value privately held companies. Here I am um, about 20 years later and still really enjoying what I do. Right. And it's a pretty simple process, right? I mean, oh, of course. The, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I want to I get into the nuances of that because, I mean, as, um, as one of the major owners of a firm and, and looking at, you know, mergers and acquisitions and succession planning and ownership and leadership transition. And every once in a while you hear these terms and, and for a while I understand them and then I forget about them and they're coming up again and do I really understand? And so what I was hoping before we begin, um, can you help get us on the same page um, as far as some basic understandings, understandings of business evaluation um, or valuation and sort of like a rapid Q&A format? Sure. Um, and so the first question is, what is business valuation why are they done and how long do they take? 
Okay, um, so business valuation is determining the value of the equity in an operating company. Um, you know, we can we can either do that at the 100% control level, or we can break that all the way down to um, valuing e either a 1% interest or a single share in a privately held company. So um, valuation is that. It's it's just, it's very similar to, you know, a lot of people have probably been through a real estate appraisal. Um, you have an appraiser who is looking at um, a real estate asset and that appraiser is using um, background skills, knowledge, uh, data, market data, information to ultimately put a value on what the market uh, would um, determine that piece of real estate to be. So that's that's valuation. Now tell me again, second question. So well, why are they done? Why are so, they done? So um, business valuations actually, every time we do one, we, we um, according to, uh, to comply with our standards, we actually have to define the purpose for the, the valuation that we are conducting at the time. Valuations can be done for anything from Corporate planning, um, ownership transition planning, um, uh, uh, ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans have a compliance issues that they have to have an annual valuation done. Um, we could be doing valuation for a shareholder litigation. It could be a divorce case. Um, it could be for um, some estate planning. It could be for an estate settlement. Somebody dies, they own shares in the company. Uh, they, we may have to do a valuation for their estate tax return. Um, merger acquisition work, um, also for financing purposes, um, uh, specifically if a company was going to go after a, a small business guarantee loan, um, the SBA has guidelines that uh, if you meet certain thresholds, you, you actually have to have a third party valuation done. So there are many, many, many reasons why a valuation may need to be done. It could also be for a, uh, uh, a bankruptcy case. I mean, you know, there's, there's just a lot of different reasons why we may need to do a valuation. Okay. And if I am an owner of a firm or on the board and, and we want to have a valuation done, we haven't had one in we haven't had one of those items come up, but we want it. How long do they take? Is it a year-long process? Is it a few months? Um, yeah, you know, it's not a year-long process. Um, you know, I typically, you know, if 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 everything is um, kind of working in sync, and you know, once the information request um, have been uh, provided, we typically try to turn those valuations in about anywhere from about five to eight weeks. Um, some of it, you know, really does depend upon the complexity of what we're looking at um, and, you know, the back and forth communication with the client, um, trying to understand certain issues um, uh, with the business. And then, of course, you know, a lot of it, too, is just in um, how much um, analysis and, and adjustment type process that we have to go through, how much of that needs to be done and uh, developing the documentation for that. So, uh, but in general, you know, I would say that on average, um, you shouldn't expect it to take more than a couple months to get that done. Okay, and then so if an evaluation is, if a valuation is done, um, so we, we hear terms out there, uh, fair market value, investment market value, strategic market value, or book value. Yeah. Could you quickly tell us what the differences are? 
Yeah. So um, book value is the val you know the value that you look at on your balance sheet. So you know the balance sheet's comprised of you know total assets, total liabilities, and then you have an equity uh, section of the balance sheet. And when you look at the equity section, so the the equity or net worth. Um, of the company that shows on the balance sheet, that's book value. And, you know, so book value takes into account things like the, the value of the cash as of the date that you pulled the balance sheet. So you've got, you may have cash, you may have accounts receivable, you might have um, WIP, you're going to have some fixed assets on there, the depreciation against those fixed assets. Um, you may have some other miscellaneous things like security deposits, deposits and those types of things on the asset side. And then on the, the uh, liability side, you're going to have um, your short-term short accounts payable. You might have short-term debt. Um, you're going to have accruals. And then, of course, any long-term liabilities that you might have for um, you know, anything from an auto loan to real estate loans to those types of things. So when you look at the difference between the asset, the total asset value, and the total liability value, ultimately that results in um, the net worth on on paper on that balance sheet. That's book value. Um, and book value does not take into account any um, intangible value that might reside um, within a, in a company. So in our industry, um, we're about people. We're about people and we're about services. And, you know, frankly, we can do a lot of that sitting at a desk with a minimal investment in a computer and a small office space. So, um, you know, the, there, so a lot of the value in a firm is really um, enveloped in the intangible side of that business. And it's the intangible side is the, you know, all the squishy stuff, right? So it's the brand name, it's the reputation, it's all of those, all of those things that um, aren't necessarily measured and put on the balance sheet um, when you're looking at the book value. So book value uh, excludes any kind of a, a intangibles, which we in the valuation world call it just in general, goodwill. There are different components that you could break it down. I'm not gonna, that's getting a little bit too much into the weeds, but um, the goodwill value doesn't exist. So when we jump to fair market value, we are talking about um, the, the, the value to any buyer in the market. And when we are developing the fair market value of a firm, um, once a value conclusion has been determined, that value um, is the representation of both the, essentially the hard assets and all of that intangible value um, is all swept in together in that value indication. Um, and, and then you also asked me about the term investment value. So investment value um, really comes into play when we get more into the merger acquisition world. Um, you know, so that is when a company might be looking to acquire another company and there are some very specific reasons why they um, have identified a particular target company whether it, it and it most of the time it's going to involve synergies between the two firms or there are specific reasons and it might be for um geographic expansion it might be for 
the additional staff expansion. It might be um, the gaining of um, access to certain clients that the target company might have. There are all kinds of different um, reasons uh, that that uh, you know a, an acquirer is going to identify a particular target. So when we get into investment value, we're um, looking at not only the fair market value. Um, of the target, but then we are also looking at the component of um, the synergies and, you know, what, what is the value creation around the synergies that may exist between that acquisition uh, or the acquirer and that, that target firm. So it seems so the book value just kind of um, from an engineer's perspective, it, it's, that's the accounting exercise in a way. It is. Yes. Um, and then the fair market value is sort of a generic, um, value of if we were to sell our company or be merged, it's worth this much, but it doesn't have a particular buyer and seller in it, but it matches the tangible and the intangible components. Yeah, I would say, so um, let me just add to that just a little bit. Um, so fair market value is the value to any buyer in the market exclusive of any synergies. So fair market value. So let's, let's assume that you and I both own firms, um, you know, or that you own a firm and I want to buy your firm. Um, I'm, I would be a fair market value buyer because I don't already own a firm that I would all, that I would be bringing to the table where I might be able to enhance my firm with the acquisition of yours. I'm truly a fair market value buyer in that I am coming in without those types of synergies involved. And so when you actually look at the definition of fair market value from the perspective of the internal revenue service, it is that the appraiser acts as um, you know the surrogate for this hypothetical buyer and hypothetical seller, both having reasonable knowledge of the relevant facts about the firm. Um, but there is no um, there is no other motivating interest um, around why a buyer would want to buy that firm. The motivation of interest really comes into play more when you get into the investment value side. Okay, and then you start to monetize not yep. just the, the book value and the fair market value, but you monetize the synergy. The synergies, them. yes, yes. Okay, all right. Well, that, that I mean, that's good because I know that confuses a lot of folks. And now, I mean, we're talking about, you know, private market valuation and we were familiar with public markets. I mean, can you, um, in terms of valuation, what, how are private companies and in a very generic sense, public companies valued differently and how do you approach that? Uh, well, so, you know, public companies um, are valued by the market, right? So, uh, you, you know, you've got, you've got um, a myriad of investors. Uh, they're all, you know, essentially minority interest investors in a publicly traded company. Um, people buy and sell those shares of stock every single day. Um, so, you know, those companies essentially get valued by the, the market in general um, through the, the buying and selling of stock. Privately held companies, um, you know, certainly differ from a publicly traded company. One, privately held companies um, do not have any kind of ability to put their shares um, out on the market to be actively and freely traded amongst um, buyers and sellers. So there's significant difference there. 
publicly traded companies, um, you know, have certainly access to capital um, that a lot of privately held companies do not have. Um, so there are definitely some, when you really start looking at the different, there are some very significant differences between publicly traded company and a privately held company, and particularly with regard to how the stock is held, um, the restrictions on um, you know, how you hold that stock, how you can trade that stock, how you can exit out of your ownership of that stock. It's very restrictive in a privately held firm, whereas if you own shares in a publicly traded company and you decide that you do not want to hold that position any longer, you can sell your shares and you'll have your money in a day or two. Um, privately held company, that process, depending upon what a shareholder agreement says, could be relatively easy or it could be a, a fairly lengthy process to go through um, to actually be able to, to exit out of your shares. Um, and you know, there's definitely a guideline uh, in a shareholder agreement on the privately held company side as to how that's going to happen. And I would think that some of those complications with a lack of access to capital, longer holding times, less ways to exit out that on a comparison basis, does it actually diminish the value? Well, it diminishes the value from what you would what you would see um, like on a PE multiple or PE ratio on a publicly traded company. You can't take that number and on and apply it to that privately held company because of the differences in in what we just talked about. Some of you know those restrictions and the holding period and the uh, the essentially. Um, very lackluster or almost no market at all if you're talking about a minority interest in a privately held company. So, uh, you know, don't think that you're going to take a PE multiple and look at that and, and plunk it down on your privately held company and go, there's my value. It, it, it's comparing apples and oranges. Right. So how do you, so if you're called in by a firm, 50 people, 200 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, but it's privately owned firm to say, Let's start a valuation process. Is there a playbook? I mean, how, how do you start that process? Uh, so, you know, I start that process. Um, first, I want to understand a little bit about the firm and I want to understand why a valuation is um, in play. You know, is there, is it a legal issue? Is it, um, you know, is it just kind of a, you know, internal check for the company just for corporate planning purposes? Um, are they about to initiate some kind of a um, stock uh, sale internally? Uh, are they trying to bring in new partners? You know, what 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 is the company attempting to do? Because that definitely plays into um, the approach and how I'm going to uh, ultimately uh, go through the process of, of valuation. But to get started, once we've had the conversation, I understand the scope of what we're going to do and the purpose for the valuation. Um, I have an information request that I make to every one of my clients. Um, it's fairly extensive. I want background information on the company. I want information around the employees, around the management. I want to understand what salary and bonus structures look like. I want to understand what the operating structure looks like. I ask questions around um, the client base, geographic dispersion. 
of revenue. Um, I want information on the, the marketing of the company and how that happens. Um, if there is real estate that's owned inside uh, of the corporate entity, you need to understand what that looks like. If it's owned in a separate entity, you know, we need to look at, um, you know, what the, the um, rental or lease rate is on that and is that representative of market. Um, I also ask questions around budgeting, forecasting. Um, I want to understand what the plan is for capital expenditures going forward. Um, and then, of course, if there's any litigation issues or there is, um, you know, the um, assumption or I guess anticipation that there's going to be a litigation issue, we need to understand what that looks like and how that could potentially impact the firm as well. Um, ask questions around life insurance policies, um, disability insurance, um, are partners leaving the firm? Are they retiring? Are they leaving because they're unhappy? Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of uh, information that I want. So that I would say in a nutshell is kind of my initial information request along with um, asking for I want five years of financial data at a minimum um, to look at income statements and balance sheets because I want to look at some trend line um, as to how the company is actually performing. So I want that information. Um, I will typically ask for accounts payable schedules, accounts receivable schedules, a backlog report. Um, I want the shareholder agreement. And in certain instances, I also want to be able to leave, uh, read some of the lease agreements that companies have. So. Um, that, that kind of gets me started. And you know what that does is um, it puts enough information in front of me to be able to look at the company from the financial operation perspective, but it also gives me that baseline to understand how the company is generally operating and what that management and corporate type structure looks like. Okay, and then is that, because I mean, the, a valuation is a point in time Right. I mean, so yes. it's that particular point based on the factors. I mean, what are, you know, there's also the terms of, you know, risk premiums and discount rates that you apply. I mean, is that sort of the, the background information you're getting on top of the financial numbers? I mean, what, what, what is a risk, I guess the question, what is a risk premium and a discount rate and how, how do those factor in as you're taking the number? I mean, is there a formula you're using to sort of starting with this and factoring in all the information you've collected? and then discounting things to come up with the number? I mean, can you get into the weeds just a little bit to give us that story of, of the, the playbook and the numbers and how those um, other factors tie into that number? Let, let me answer your question in this way, and then you tell me if I've answered your question. So the way that I like to work is I like to go through the process of valuing um, the 100% the, the control level value of the firm first. So I will start by valuing that, that level, 100% um, of the shares. Um, and in doing that, you asked me about a discount rate. So in doing that, um, you know, uh, one of the approaches to value that I use is an income approach. And within an income approach, there are different methodologies that can be used, um, whether there is an expectation of a stable, uh, stable growth and, and stable earning stream, or if there is anticipation that that growth and earning stream is going to um, fluctuate. So that will help me to determine what methodology I'm gonna use. But ultimately what I'm gonna do is I am going to develop 
um, what we call a normalized earning stream, whether that is at the EBITDA level, whether that is a pre-tax earning stream, whether that is um, what we call net cash flow earning stream. And I'm gonna take an earning stream um, and I am going to develop a value indication out of that earning stream by applying a discount rate. And so the discount rate is essentially the representation of the rate of return that an investor would require to invest in this particular privately held company. So that discount rate is what I use to convert to value. Um, and then once I come up with my um, 100 percent control level value if I am also going to be valuing a minority interest in the firm then um, I will go through the process of um, applying um, uh, what we call minority interest discounts minority interest discounts are going to include two things one is a discount for lack of control um, because a minority interest in a privately held company essentially has no control so an investor it would look at that from the, the perspective of the minority interest and say, okay, if I'm investing in this firm, uh, I'm a minority interest owner. I can't control certain things. I can't control the assets of the corporation. I can't control, uh, you know, potentially contracts and obligations that are made by control level owners. Um, in certain instances, control level owners tend to take a lot of perquisities that a minority interest owner can't control. So there's a lot of reasons around the control factor. And so we apply a discount for lack of control to recognize the fact that that minority interest owner doesn't have it. Secondly, a minority interest owner in a privately held firm um, tends to have a, a lot of restriction on the marketability of their shares. So the saleability of those shares. Minority interest owner in a privately held company can't just say, you know, I'm done owning these shares. I want to sell them and I'm going to sell them to whomever. Uh, you know, it typically a minority interest owner is going to have to sell them to somebody internal to the firm. There, there's a lot of different things that can happen um, in that process with regard to rights of first refusal. Um, it could be rights of first refusal and there is a lineage between it could be, you know, shareholders first and they have certain, um, you know, timeframes that they can look at on rights of first refusal and then we could get into the company portion of that as well. But um, there are a lot of restrictions around that. So, be, and in certain instances, um, a minority interest owner, um, you know, is going to have a difficult time uh, selling those shares, um, particularly when you have a very, very restrictive stockholder agreement. So, because of that, um, we look at a lot of different factors around the marketability of shares. And we will also apply a, a discount for lack of marketability for the minority interest as well. So just to kind of recap, typically you're going to get 100% control level value. And then if we're valuing a minority interest, um, typically we're going to take a discount for lack of control and a discount for lack of marketability. Uh, I will say that the caveat is unless the shareholder agreement instructs me otherwise. So I have seen uh, certain shareholder agreements that say that uh, is some kind of a language which will say uh, 
something to the extent of, um, you know, all of the shares in the firm will be transacted at a pro rata value, which means that there are no discounts that get applied for the minority interest, or it, it might say something along the lines of, um, you know, the shares will be valued uh, without without minority interest discounts. So in those instances, I do not apply those discounts because that's what the shareholder agreement um, indicates that everybody has agreed to that own shares in the firm. But if the shareholder agreement is silent on that issue, we're typically gonna apply those, those discounts. Right. And it seems like a lot of firms don't have those, those discounts that, you know, each share is valued similar. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like just from a simplicity perspective, there's a value of the firm and it's, we develop a share price and it's sort of equal for everyone, whether they have a controlling percentage or a non-controlling percentage. Is that correct? I would say internally in the way that a lot of firm owners um, behave internally when they're transacting shares, they, they do come at it from that perspective. Um, but that is a completely different world than, you know, my world of fair market value. So, you know, my world of fair market value requires that I look, I, I look at certain um, uh, issues and, and I have to make those considerations. So, you know, that shareholder agreement becomes, you know, a very important piece of my analysis work when I'm actually looking at valuing that minority interest in the firm. Okay. So if, if, um, if let's say the scenario is um, it, a mid-sized firm is looking to have a valuation done for internal um, stock um, succession planning in a way, you know, to trans transition ownership and you have the numbers and you have information on operations, how, how do you determine or how, how is it that a firm, you know, there's the numbers, there's the cash flow, there's all that sort of tangible information that you're using and rolling in the formulas. How do you figure out, does this firm have good management and leadership? And as a result, it's worth more or there's some question marks or too much of the business development is held in two little hands. And so therefore, when we come up with that number, it's got to be discounted a little bit. How, how do you factor in some of the, the leadership and management aspects as you're looking at evaluation? Sure. Um, so I'll take you back to valuing 100% control level interest. I, I come up with my earning stream and I, I said I apply a discount rate to that earning stream to develop a value indication. There are um, multiple components to that discount rate, and it starts with a basis in uh, publicly traded stocks is the basis for a rate that we will use. And we have what we call the buildup um, method that we can uh, use to approach the development of a discount rate. And one of the components is um, looking at what we call a specific company risk premium. Um, and so we are looking at the specific company that we're valuing and we are um, going to develop a certain um, premium for either very positive characteristics about that particular firm or some um, you know, characteristics that might indicate that this particular company is more risky. And that's really what this is around is it's looking at the risk profile of the company. So, uh, and part of that is looking at the management 
of, of the company. Um, for example, you know, it, a lot of firms, I mean, I, I work with firms of all sizes. I literally everything from, you know, little under a million in revenue to over a hundred million in revenue and a, anything in between. So, you know, there's, there's, I've seen a lot of different um, sized firms um, in my evaluation work. And, you know, in some cases, even sizable firms, um, they still have a singular owner that is the primary rainmaker in the company. Uh, singular owner is, you know, maybe on the older end of the age scale, um, you know, that, that in itself um, with just having one rainmaker in the company is problematic in itself. Um, then you start breaking it down by looking at some of the other characteristics, age, health, um, does the company um, have an, a life insurance policy on that owner? And is the, you know, does, or does the, is the company the beneficiary of a life insurance policy or not? I mean, there's all kinds of characteristics even around that that we would take a look at um, to determine whether or not um, a company in the way that it has structured its management and um, its, its particular specific characteristics um, are they more positive or are they more risky than, uh, you know, than, than looking at kind of, you know, the, I would say the average um, firm in the industry. So I don't know if that's answered the question um, in total, but definitely look at, you know, the management and the strength and the ability of management. What is the, what is the, the, the less risky profile? just to have leadership and management and business development all dispersed within the system. I mean, what, what, if I was a firm um, leadership team and, and I wanted to sort of maximize my value and I was looking at leadership, but ma maximize my true value that, you know, someone like you looking at the numbers would be able to um, reflect in those numbers. What would lower my risks? Uh, diversification amongst the leadership team um, with regard to business development would be one. Um, you know, you, you want to have multiple um, people involved in that process and you want your, you want your clients to have relationships with more than one person in that firm. So, you know, by having uh, and giving clients the comfort level that all of your management team um, is certainly capable um, and, you know, ha of having a relationship with those clients, I think that that's really important. Um, so diversification um, on business development is one. Um, certainly, you know, even looking at um, let's step outside the management team for a moment, but looking at even the diversification of the client base, you know, does a firm have um, a significant reliance um, and, and percentage of revenue that's generated annually that is related to one particular client? So we call that client concentration. And um, we're always looking at at that as a risk profile factor as well. Um, because if client A is 50% of your revenue stream and something happens and client A goes away, um, you've just cut your company in half. And how are you gonna generate the revenue um, to be able to make up for that in a 12 month period of time? 
so to speak. So client concentration's a big deal. Um, and it's not just in one client. You know, typically what I will do is I will look at the company's top five clients for the last five years. And I want to see if there is concentration not only in one client, but the whole of five clients combined together. So, you know, if you've got, if you've got um, a lot of client concentration in only a very few handful of customers, it's, it's going to increase your risk profile overall, just simply because um, it's much more difficult to um, replace a significant portion of your earning stream if, in fact, you happen to lose one of those those clients. So, so it's really looking at your, your internal, the diversification of your business development and externally, the diversification of your client base. The, diver, those yes. are key factors. Absolutely. And, you know, not only we look at the diversification of the client base, but we also even look at it from the perspective of, um, are, you know, is a firm uh, primarily concentrated in one geographic location or does that firm have some dispersion um, across geographic locations so that if one particular um, area that they happen to work in uh, might, you know, have a, a, a deeper reaction to economic factors than another, then there is certainly some balancing that can go on between the revenue stream. If it's all concentrated in one particular location, um, depending upon you know what that looks like overall, but that could certainly be a risk a risk factor as well. Now, are are these when you when you look at that, are they embedded in the numbers, the hard and fast numbers that you're looking at, or are they just what you're looking at in applying a risk premium? Those are, um, we'll call those characteristics. It's not necessarily the hard and fast numbers. It's the characteristics of um, in the, how, how those characteristics contribute to the numbers, right? So, you know, we're looking at it from that perspective when we're developing that specific company risk. Okay. And then how, I know there's probably no one answer, but if you were to try to find like a, a median condition, you have the numbers and it generates a cash flow uh, and there's a value based on the hard and fast numbers, but then you add in the different um, risk premiums. How much can a valuation change based on the risk, risk premiums? I mean, could it double? Could it be cut in half? Or is it a 20% factor? I mean, are there, is everyone a little differently or is there just the risk premiums are really can be heavily weighted or have little weight on the actual numbers? Yeah, there's really no hard and fast rule to that at all. I mean, it really um, comes down to, you know, the, the data that I'm looking at, the information that I'm provided, um, a lot of discussion with management in management interview, but ultimately um, it is the appraiser's judgment as to what that specific company risk premium will ultimately look like. Uh, and I would say that in certain instances, the risk premium is going to be heavier than in others. Um, you know, and, and it is all due to the facts and circumstances of that particular business that we're looking at. Thus, that's why we call it the specific company risk premium. That is part of the component of the overall discount rate. Right, right. So, I mean, if we're just looking at cash, um, that's, that's really not the valuation. I mean, that's the no. valuation at this point in time with the current leadership structure, with the current business development, with the current client profile. But if we were to look forward, 
that's where the, the risk premiums come in. And, and if you're going to transition the company then internally, externally, we've got to take into account the risks outside of the present day and the past success. Certainly. So, you know, valuation, Pete, in itself is, um, you know, the looking, looking into the future. So, you know, from an accounting perspective, accounting is always backwards looking, right? So we have income statements, balance sheets, as of certain dates and time, those are always in the past. But a, biz, a buyer of a business, while they might look at the past as an indication of what the future might hold, a, a business buyer or a business investor is investing for the future. They're not investing in the past. So, you know, we're always um, in, in my world, we're always having to do the forward look, um, you know, while past might have, have some indication and be part of the explanation, it's really the future is where we focus all of our time. So if I, if I was a, a leadership team and we were saying we want to make investments, we want to operate our organization in ways that we want to maximize our value three to five years from now. Um, what should you, from a, from a person who values the firms, what should they be looking to invest in? Well, you know, I would say some of it is, um, it might not necessarily be hard dollar investment of things, but it's, it's getting your house in order. So it is looking at who's rainmaking, how, you know, how much of the rainmaking are they doing and, and can we find ways to, um, allocate that across maybe some other um, leadership team so that we are um, diversifying part of that risk. Looking at your client concentration, is there a way to diversify that? Is there a way to diversify? Maybe you only work in one market sector. Um, is there a way to diversify into other sectors in the market so that when one's down, the other one's up? And so, you know, you're always kind of trying to find that, that happy medium there. Um, so it, a lot of it is around those types of things, um, having, having, I've mentioned it, but, you know, having the life insurance policy where the company's beneficiary, um, in my opinion, is, is one of the things that companies should be investing in that will ultimately um, help to lower that specific company risk. Um, and then and just, just to sidebar on that, is, yeah. is the, 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 value of the life insurance policy proportional to the value of the rainmaking or the connections within the firm? I mean, is there a separate valuation process or is that with the actuaries in the, the insurance world where you figure out that each person might have a different value, maybe it's pro rata share or, or that each one has a different value, but the, the key is to get the value and then have the proceeds because we could get hit by the bus tomorrow, all of us, like outside of the transition of our firms, if we're looking right. in that mode or selling it. So that's just, it, it's a protection factor, but are, is everyone valued a little differently? And is there a separate process for that? Typically what, what um, people will do is, um, so, you know, we'll determine the value of the, the company and then um, the life insurance policies are based on the percentage owned by each individual shareholder. And so that, that helps them to determine how much life insurance uh, they want to take out. So that's usually how firms will um, decide how much coverage each one of their shareholders really needs. 
Okay. And then that protects the value of the firm if something were to happen. It does. because So I, I want to come back, remind me, I want to come back to, um, I want to talk about accounts receivable, but we'll stay on this topic for a moment because it, it is, um, it's important. So, you know, firm owner um, gets hit by the bus. No, no life insurance policy. So what's going to happen is there's going to be a certain percentage of the firm that is is going to now be owned by the estate of that person. Um, depending upon how successful the company may or may not be, how much, you know, if they've got cash reserves, if they really don't, you know, if, if they operate with a lot of debt, there's all kinds of factors. But, you know, if a the company has to have the money in some way to be able to buy those shares from the estate. And um, in the, the difficulty comes in when um, the firm has to buy those over a period of time. So what you're now doing is you're obligating your firm to what could potentially be a significant liability that's now going to get put on the balance sheet. And so you're, you're, you're diminishing cash because you're having to pay for that. And so when you're diminishing your cash, all other things held equal, you're gonna drive your value down because the cash flows are gonna be driven down. Whereas if you had the insurance policy in place, it's part of the overall operating expenses of the company, but you know, shareholder gets hit by the bus tomorrow, life insurance policy is gonna kick in, the money is there, the shares get purchased from the estate, you don't have the liability issue going on on the balance sheet and you're not diminishing your cash. So in my opinion, it's one of, you know, it to me, it's one of the most important things that a firm owner can do for their business is make sure that you have that particular topic covered, not only for your uh, firm, but also for your family. Because your family is, you know, um, dependent upon you to, you know, um, bring home your earning stream. And when that's no longer there and it's going to come in in bits and pieces because the firm can't just buy all those shares at one time in a lot of instances, it's a difficulty on everybody. And I have seen some really, um, you know, I've seen some pretty sad circumstances that come out of um, people who don't have that um, taken care of and they and they happen to pass unexpectedly and it's it, it really kind of uh, puts a big dent in the firm and in some instances they don't that the survival rate goes down significantly because of that. So I mean so that uh, so if we're looking three to five years out we want to understand what we need to do to maximize our valuation looking forward. So we want to diversify our business development. We want to look at diversifying our client base geographically in the market sectors. We want to protect our financial interests with having life insurance policies um, that pay the company so we don't have that financial hit on the balance sheet. Yeah. Although if someone happens to, something happens to share, we're still going to have a hit because we've lost the rainmaking capabilities, but that's just kind of life and that that's overall a risk everyone takes and hopefully everyone's safe, but it doesn't have the the secondary effect of really hurting the balance sheet. And yeah, and and you know, hopefully, uh, yes. And so, certainly, if somebody's a rainmaker and and uh, you know they get the bus, they, they do get hit by the bus. Um, it is going to have an impact on the firm. But hopefully, um, there has been some diversification amongst the leadership team that, um, while it's going to be felt, 
across the firm for a lot of different reasons, um, you know, emotionally, uh, you know, uh, financially, every bit of it. Um, hopefully there's enough diversification that it's not detrimental to the continuance of the company for a going concern basis. So if we're looking at the operations, so that's, you know, sort of the business development, the clients, I mean, we can look at that. If we're looking at operations, investing in project management training, investing in leadership development training, the, those other elements, is, is there a tangible value to those? Or is it just over time, if you start today, next year, two years, three years, five years from now, you're going to see your financial numbers improve. If you do the right type of training, the right type of development, you will see more profitability. You will see less litigation. Like you, you will see the changes in the numbers. They're factored into the base case, and then the discount factors are, or risk premiums are placed upon a better cash flow number. I mean, am I oversimplifying it or under reporting? I mean, how, how do you? We want to invest in training and development. Yeah. What's the ROI on that, and how does it work into your valuation? Well, certainly, I think that um, over time, uh, training and development um, will, if you're doing it the right way and people are truly taking it seriously, you are going to see an improvement in your numbers. And the more improvement in the numbers, um, typically, the lower the risk for the company overall. So if you are making the investment, your numbers are getting better over time, that three to five year period, um, you, should be able, you should be seeing that improvement. And as the company improves and becomes more and more solid, that risk premium number is gonna go down. And, and when the risk premium goes down, discount rate goes down, value goes up. So it, it is overall, um, you know, hopefully everything that you're doing is is ultimately going to be reflected in the financial performance of the company if you're truly paying attention to you know looking at it from a holistic perspective and how it, it really will affect the business um, i'll give you an example of that that i see quite often um, in fact, Zweig Group yesterday just had a webinar um, called Hurting the Dollars. And really the topic of the conversation was around um, some of the whip that's on the balance sheet in, you know, some companies track it, they put it on the balance sheet and, um, you know, kind of this timing issue between um, whip that's on the balance sheet and when does the actual invoice go out? So there was a conversation around that um, and there was also a conversation around um, accounts receivable, collection rates. And, and this is one of the things that I also look at um, when I'm valuing a firm. So I run, when I get the financial data, I run a whole lot of ratio analysis on the company. And I'm looking at all kinds of leverage ratios, liquidity ratios, operating ratios. I want to look at working capital ratios. I'm looking at some of the industry specific performance ratios. And what I'm doing is um, I want to look at them uh, from the perspective of how do they compare to the industry, but I also want to see if those ratios are giving me any indication of trend lines of improvement, stagnation, or are we losing ground? And when you start running those ratios and looking at that over time, um, it's, it really can help to tell a pretty good story about how well um, the company is being run and, and how much um, attention 
is being paid to the overall management of the company. Let's get back to the accounts receivable thing. Accounts receivable. Um, you finish work, you send the invoice to the client. You know, the, I think the expectation in people's minds is that that payment will come and it will come fairly quickly. But I see a lot of companies that have accounts receivable collection rates that are 90 days, 80 days. I actually looked at a company a couple of years ago that had a 120 day collection rate. And some of it is due to the fact that, you know, you're working in a subconsultant role um, and it's, you know, paid when get paid kind of situation. But in certain other instances, that's not the case. And, you know, you have to think about it from the perspective of when you have a, a 80, 90, 100, 120 day collection period, you've got daily operations that's going to go on in that period of time that you have to fund. And how are you funding that? And so, you know, are you um, really diminishing a lot of your ability to take advantage of other opportunities as they arise be because you have so much tied up in accounts receivable that you're basically funding your client for a period of time. And so paying attention to accounts receivable collection and getting that rate down is going to do a lot of things. Uh, it's going to it's going to increase the your cash turnover rates. Um, so you're going to have more availability of cash. It's very likely that you can also lessen your dependency on um, short-term line of credit situations. So you're not you're not having to uh, rely on um, a lot of interest-bearing debt to operate your firm. So that's one of the my big stickler points when I look at accounts receivable collections is I always want to talk to management about why it is taking so long um, to collect accounts receivable. Um, sometimes there's very good reason for that. Other times there's really no good reason for that. Uh, I actually had a valuation that I did last year and I'm talking with the management team and I think there are about five or six of them on the phone. And um, I brought this up because their collection rate was not good. And um, I brought it up and asked the question, why is your accounts receivable collection um, so long? And it's just kind of been hovering and actually increasing over time. The company president piped in immediately and said, I've been trying to tell them this. <laughs> Nobody has listened to me. Um, but he said, I always felt like it was an issue, but I never... I never really had, um, I guess, maybe the hardcore data to lay it on the table and say, this is an issue and we absolutely have to fix it. But when you start putting numbers in front of people and talking in that way, it's like, oh, wow, didn't realize it was that bad. <laughs> right. And a lot of business implications you saw with the lack of investment using interest-bearing money to be able to fund the operation. And there could be no good reason other than our project managers are super busy and not getting out the invoices or, yep. I mean, I guess from an operational, it, it could be a red flag. I mean, why aren't our clients paying? I mean, the, right. the, they don't see the work as quality or they're concerned about, you know, th th it could be a red flag on client issues too. Oh, um, absolutely. In that sense. Absolutely. So it really is, it could be process um, or it could be operations or even an external client concern. I want to talk about, you You were just talking about the, the ratios and benchmarking and looking at things. Um, 
So when, there's a lot of industry data out there where you can get benchmarked and you're in the upper quartile, the lower quartile, median. Is that, do you use that information? So when you're looking at, so I'm a firm today, I want to start making investments and changing some of my performance and my results so that I look better three to mm-hmm. five years from now. Plus I'm making more money now. I mean, but also the valuation is going up. Sure. Is that where you compare those risk premiums come in to date when you're looking saying, wow, over the last few years, you've um, obviously been investing because these metrics, you went from median to the upper quartile and that's a sign of things to come. So therefore risk premiums are lower, valuation is higher versus you have a good thing going now. The ownership team for whatever reasons, preventative maintenance is going down or it's neutral and we're good to catch. If you could see in those numbers as maybe ranking compared to the industry and the benchmarks that there's not a lot of preventative maintenance, let alone investment. And so therefore maybe compared to the industry in key categories, there's a higher risk premium, therefore lower valuation. Yeah, there is certainly, um, you know, if if there are certain um, ratio measures that are going up, which indicates um, um, poor performance, certainly from the perspective of risk, um, if that is the case and you're seeing those trend lines from the perspective of risk, you're elevating your risk um, by not paying attention, you know, to, to those to those particular measures. And you know, a lot of people, a lot of firm owners, they don't do any kind of ratio analysis. They don't follow any kind of trend lines. You know, they they, you know, a lot of companies, they might look at their income statements and balance sheets maybe every couple of weeks. A lot of them are every month. Um, but that's the extent of what they're doing. And they're not necessarily looking at any kind of the trend line or, you know, even if you want to call, like put together a dashboard of some of the more important um, ratio measures that you want to follow. Nobody's looking at that. So in a certain sense, without really looking at that to give you a bigger picture of what's happening in your firm on a week to week or a month to month basis, um, you are really kind of um, putting yourself in a position where you're making certain decisions in a vacuum because you're not looking at those things. So it's, you know, it's, it's, um, in my opinion, I always try to emphasize with my clients that, uh, you should be doing some ratio analysis work throughout the year, um, following, even if it's the minimal stuff, um, you know, looking at accounts, receivable collection rates, looking at your liquidity, how many days, um, you know, accounts payable are you, uh, you know, so that's kind of an interesting one as well, because I'll have a lot of companies that their accounts receivable collection rate is 90 days or 70 days, or but it's still, it's a long time. But then I turn around and I look at their days payable and they're 10, 15, they're not even 30. So when you stop and think about that, what you're doing is you are burning your cash because you're having to pay for operations Um, And part of that is your accounts payable. So, you know, not only is it just the the cash need that you have, but you are just burning through the cash. And in certain instances, um, you know, if you lost a big client, a certain contract or whatever, and all of a sudden you've got this big blip that happens in in your revenue stream, the expenses never stop. The cash does. 
and you know if you don't if you don't have a good balance between that collection rate that payable rate and looking at some of those things ultimately you're going to you're going to find yourself in a uh, a ditch that you didn't necessarily want to put yourself into so i mean all these elements they they come out of a good valuation process i mean even if it's you know, how often do you think, because it's, you know, in the course of business, as we're running this and doing that and growing the firm and open this office, I mean, maybe we lose track or the, you know, different board meetings, we don't pay attention so much. How, how often do you think, even just get the insight from an operational perspective that can help us this year and next year, how often do you think it's good to have a valuation done? And then if I'm planning on um, transitioning my company in, internally or externally at some point, what's the best time horizon um, between, I guess, the, the valuation? So from an operational perspective and then from a, from a sale perspective or a transition, is there any good time horizons or ideal time horizons from your perspective? So the question on how often should a company have a valuation done? Um, I have that conversation with clients quite a bit. And um, I would say that, um, you know, depending upon what you're doing. So if you're in the process of going through a lot of internal ownership transition, so you're buying, you're buying and selling shares annually, internally, um, transitioning out, um, you know, the shareholders that are, that are entering their retirement window, you've got the new owners that are coming in. Um, what I have found over time, Pete, is that um, a lot of my clients that used to do valuations every three years or so, they've actually moved into doing an annual valuation. And um, because they're doing internal share transactions um, more frequently, number one, but what they have also found is that the new people coming in and that are sitting in the boardroom, you know, about to about to commit to buying shares. Um, it's a much easier process when you have an independent third party opinion report sitting in front of you than um, you know, these incoming buyers um, looking at this and saying, well, how'd you come up with the value? And the answer is, well, we just decided in the boardroom what the value was going to be. So, you know, by having that done, um, it tends, to, my client feedback has been that it tends to be an easier process overall, and you get a, an easier buy-in um, with shareholders that are coming into the process. Um, so for that reason, um, annual valuations um, are, you know, can, can be good um, for an easier transition process. Secondly, um, depending upon, you know, if, again, if you're doing um, internal share transactions, but you don't want to do evaluation every year, I would say you would probably want to think about it if you had a significant change in your operational performance, either up or down, because that is going to have an effect on the value indication. So some kind of significant change. Um, you know, you had, you, you, uh, ended up with, um, you know, a, a huge new contract, which is going to add, you know, a couple million dollars um, or $5 million additional revenue for the next few years. Uh, and that has happened. Um, so significant changes like that, where you actually take a big step up in um, operational performance. Um, I have a client that uh, I just finished evaluation for earlier this year that had um, gone through 
a strategic planning process with Swide Group, and uh, they went through the process and actually executed the plan. And their results were significant. And if you look at their financial performance four years ago to what their financial performance was in 2018 and 19, it is night and day. So even you know executing on that strategic plan, um, and if there are significant changes that come out of that, I would definitely say it would be time to do evaluation. Um, on the ownership transition planning piece, if you are in the process of um, developing an ownership transition plan, so that's also something that, you know, part of our service that we offer at Zweig is um, uh, ownership transition planning. And what uh, we do in our process is we actually start with a valuation of the firm's stock um, so that uh, there is an understanding of what that stock value is. And then, um, and, and then it is a matter of, you know, looking at the exiting owners, what their their exit windows are, um, you know, how many of them are there, uh, what are the timing horizons, hopefully you don't have too many exiting all at one time, um, and then the incoming buyers, and how, you know, how much is the incoming buyer going to be able to withstand to be able to buy the shares, pay for the shares, how do the shares get paid for, all of that, and so typically on, on the transition horizon, um, we suggest to clients that you truly need about 10 years. If you really want to do it the right way, you need a long-term horizon for that exit process because something could happen. You may need to hit the pause button. It actually just may take that long to be able to transition, um, you know, depending upon how many shares somebody owns, what that age looks like all of those various factors. So 10 years, um, if we can get 10 years, we are super happy to work with that 10 year um, planning horizon. Um, all too often, we get the phone calls of the 65, 68 year old firm owner that says, I wanna be out of here in two years and I wanna transition my shares to three other people in the firm. And at that point, that's a, that's a big mountain to climb, <laughs> you know, and, and in certain instances, it just can't happen with an internal transition, traditionally how, you know, how that has been done. So then, you know, we try to work with clients and helping them to find alternative financing uh, mechanisms that could actually make that happen. But the longer you wait, the shorter the horizon, the less, the less chance you have that it's going to work and maximize your exit value like you really want to as an owner. Right, 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 right. That you can do it, physically do it um, without getting outside help and at the maximum value. Yeah, well, I, I want to thank you for bringing clarity to the valuation process and a lot of these items. Because I know I, a lot of firm owners that, again, talk about it. There's some sense of, I think I understand that, but then you kind of forget it. And two years later, you bring it up again. And so I, I want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing about this. But before we close, is there any, anything related to valuation that um, we haven't talked about that you're, you think is important to share? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I would say that just overall, um, everybody's situation is different. And, you know, so 
if you talk to, maybe you have a friend, a colleague in the business, they own a firm, their share value is this, or their firm values that, or their EBITDA multiples this, or their EBITDA multiples that, don't take that as, quotes, an industry guideline, because that is really, um, in my opinion, not, not a good way to approach your planning, because your characteristics could be significantly different than the characteristics of your colleague's company. And you may be undervaluing your firm. You could be significantly overvaluing your firm. Um, and, and either way, if you're undervaluing, you're, um, you're eroding your own value creation that you have probably invested 20, 30, 40 years in, in running your company. If you're overvaluing, um, you could potentially be creating and setting up your company for um, some pretty significant financial difficulties because the, the stock is too rich. They, the company ultimately can't afford it. You're going to create cash flow problems for the people who are trying to pay for that. So don't just take it verbatim, you know, just don't take that verbatim that a, a multiple is a multiple is a multiple. That is because it's just not the case. And, you know, overall, um, I would say that that's just kind of a running theme that, you know, I, I try to um, keep, ask people to keep in mind when they're thinking about valuation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, beyond that, Pete, I just really like to, you know, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk with your um, listeners about this. Valuation is complex and it's not just a simple, you know, conversation. And I can tell you that it's not taking some numbers and throwing them into a formula and spitting something out. It, it, there is much more qualitative assessment that goes into the process. Um, and if anybody has questions, I am more than happy to visit with you about your particular situation uh, and whether or not you need valuation work. You may need something else. You may need to start with something completely different than valuation, but I can certainly, um, you know, give you uh, some feedback and, and give you my opinion to the process and talk to you and answer specific questions. Great. Well, along those lines, how can listeners get in touch with you um, to learn more about you and what you're doing? Um, you can certainly email me. Um, my email address is teaves, it's T-E-A-V-E-S at zweigroup.com. Um, you're also welcome to, uh, you know, call the corporate office. You can reach me directly at 505-258-8821. Uh, all right. Excellent. And we'll put those in the show notes. And essentially, you, 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 uh, as you were closing, uh, what, what occurred to me was, you know, as a firm in the marketplace, we say we're, we differentiate ourselves and, and we're different and you, we're unique. And these are the reasons why you need to hire us versus these other firms. And so we're, we're advocating the fact that we're different and we're better. And, and these are the reasons why. And if we flip that internally, I mean, if we truly are different and better, we're going to be worth more than our competition. And so we should develop our own multiple, just like we develop our own sales pitch and approach to projects. I mean, Absolutely. everyone's unique. Like we try to be in the marketplace. We're unique in valuation too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way to put that. Well, excellent. Well, thank you again, Tracy. I um, appreciate it. And I know the listeners will, and I look forward to talking with you again. Very good. Thank you, Pete. Take care. You're, dig you're digging deeper. And that, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is the digging deeper part is really where 
um, you know, you can kind of make or break some of your value, um, depending upon how you run your company. Uh, you know, something that we didn't talk about, but I, I should have mentioned it. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Harmony of shareholders. You know, that's a big deal. Um, are the shareholders harmonious in the operation of the company? Because I have seen far too many times the internal battle of people who are getting to the point that they don't like each other, man, they're doing a lot of harm to their companies. And, and it shows uh, not only in, um, you know, just the financials profitability of the company, but it's also in the management side of that equation and, um, and how, you know, people just aren't paying attention to really what they're doing. Well, let's, I mean, that, let's, let's dig into that I mean, for, because, I mean, I'll, work that I do with organizations, um, there has been maybe a leadership team that has worked together for a while. There's a lot of respect. There's a lot of admiration. But at one point, there was a lot of like and a lot of love. Um, and the, the respect continues. Maybe I love you, but I don't like you right now. Yeah. I mean, it could go to extreme where I don't even like to be in the same room. Our board meetings aren't, can, you know, very nice at all. Um, and we're not getting things done. And we're not even having the, the discussion needed to advance this because we're not really engaging. We're just sort of being passive and I'm just going to do my own thing and you do your own thing. And I, it's, it can be a very dysfunctional environment, like the opposite yeah. of, you know, the five ways to function as a team. So, yes. I mean, how... How do you take that into account in valuations and what advice would you give firms, you know, as far as to how to get back on the same page? Well, uh, so it kind of goes back to the specific company risk premium. If, if I have uh, fighting shareholders, that firm is at high, high risk because, you know, it, do, it wouldn't take much to push a firm over the cliff. Um, if somebody really wanted to, you know, um, kind of just go off the deep end uh, and, and you quit participating altogether. So, you know, it's, um, it, it, it would increase that risk premium, which is going to drive value down. Um, I, I've got stories. I mean, I've got, I've got stories about people who've done things to their partners. It's just amazing <laughs> that people actually do that to each other. Um, but I had one, so I had a uh, architecture firm, um, pretty nice little company. Um, so founder shareholder, he brings in a 30% partner and gives this guy stock gifted to him, the stock. So this guy, um, works for several years and, um, decides that he's ready for retirement. But by the time he gets there, they had, their relationship was, uh, not, ideal any longer. He ultimately um, ended up holding the 70% shareholder hostage uh, to get this guy out. And the 70% shareholder was saying, ultimately, this guy's harming my company. I can't do this anymore. There's all kinds of issues going on. And so they had had a valuation done by appraiser number one. They couldn't agree. They had a valuation done by appraiser number two. They couldn't agree. I got hired as the third appraiser according to their shareholder agreement. And the deal was 
in the shareholder agreement, it said, um, whatever the third appraiser comes up with, we will agree to that number. I get the valuation done. And in the process of doing that valuation, I'm working with the 30% shareholder because he's the financial guy. Pete, every time I would ask questions around some of the numbers, I would get a whole new set of financial statements that were different. And so there was a lot going on there. But ultimately, I finished the valuation. I, I, I had to literally be the psychologist between these two guys and the mediator all at the same time to get them to say, okay, we're going to agree on this number for this particular thing. And, you know, and it was like everything had to be writing email, copy, both of them. It was, it was a mess, horrible mess. In the end, they still, the 30% the shareholder would not agree to the value, even though he was, um, he participated in that from day one. Uh, still wouldn't agree. And I, I don't know, um, ultimately, uh, I think it took the 70% guy, I think it took him another year and a half to finally get a number in front of this guy that he would agree to so they could get him out. But that entire process of going through that, being distracted, spending all the additional money um, was, it was real, it was harmful to the company, um, you know, because you could see it in the profitability levels that there was some, had to be some internal issues going on because of just crazy, you know, crazy, cost numbers and profitability wasn't there. And then I got to talking to him and it was just like, man, this is a can of worms. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, it gets, I mean, there's a lot of mental and emotional energy spent uh, on those issues, which have to come at the expense of the firm. I mean, there's, yeah. there's not an endless supply necessarily in a lot of us. So that, that sounds like an extreme example, but I guess just the fact that the harmony of shareholders, particularly you know, the majority shareholders who might function as the leadership team or the, the management team is critical. I, any advice that you would give leadership teams to say, you know, from a valuation perspective, harmony is important. Here's some of the things that you should be doing, or just you've had to figure out how to stay harmonious um, and really stay in like and have a, a functioning relationship with people because well, you've I already chosen them. Yeah, yeah, you have. I mean, you know, I mean, the reality is, in a way, you're married to these people. You spend as much time, if not more, than you do with your spouse um, in running these companies. So, you know, I would say, I don't know that I have any, you know, specific advice on how to be harmonious, but I think that you have to figure out how to stay harmonious. Um, and, you know, probably um, part of that process is engaging everybody in like the strategic planning process, you know? So if, if you go as a team through the strategic planning process and you develop that strategic plan, if everybody's on the same page and you begin to execute that, um, everybody's gonna experience the, um, the success that comes out of the actual execution of a strategic plan once it has been decided upon and put in place. And, um, you know, I think when people experience success, it really lessens the opportunity for the, um, the dissension to creep in, um, you know, to, to a team. So I think it's even the exercises of those types of things, setting those goals. 
making it happen, working with each other, depending upon each other to, you know, pull your weight. Um, if everybody's, if everybody's pulling the, the wagon equally, um, I would tend to think everybody should stay relatively happy with what the result's going to be. Mm. Well, that, I mean, that, that, that's great advice. And it's not only good advice from team, um, uh, team harmony and sort of having fun <laughs> at work, but it's good financial advice for valuation. It is, um, you know, because generally when everybody is pulling their weight and executing on those plans and growing the company and diversifying into different, you know, different markets, different sectors, they all have different profitability levels. So if you can go after some really interesting work, you can be, and you can be a market leader, it, it's, it's going to fall to the bottom line. I mean, it, it just is going to, and um, you know, it's, there's nothing better than seeing your firm um, you know, continue to be more successful than it was the year before and, and stronger, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, uh, when you decide that you're going to get yourself in shape and you start doing it, you know, over time, you just keep getting, you, you, you know, initially you're going to see like that big, huge improvement, right? And then if you continue to maintain that, but you just keep getting better and better over time and, you know, you just kind of go, man, this feels good. And it's really kind of the same situation. Um, you know, when you have those harmonious uh, teams, I've, I have a very um, large company that I do an annual valuation for the, and they, they have a large executive team, but all of the division leaders and the team leaders, those guys, just work together so well and and they do a great job and it is very very evident in how well they work together because their company is just ultra successful well it gets into that you know employee engagement is very important i think as important or more important is the principal engagement. How do you keep the principals fully engaged, growing and enthusiastic about their careers in the organization? Because sure. that's, I guess that, that, that could be the start of not being harmonious. I think that's, I think that's great advice. Well, you have to put those people that you are identifying as your leadership team, you got to put everybody at the table to help make the decision. And I think that that's part of, when things begin to break down is when you have certain people who make all the decisions, but not everybody that is ultimately responsible for the execution of that. They don't get, they don't get to um, at least give their input into the process. And so uh, in my opinion, that is where some, some breakdown can occur um, is when you don't, when you don't involve the right people in your decision-making process. Excellent. I think that's fantastic. Um, I might figure out how to get that, weave that right back in there. Because um, I think that's a, that's a, that is really important from a valuation perspective. And again, if you're doing an evaluation, if you're involved, I mean, what, I want to maximize your value. Yeah. Do great things to maximize your value. We're all working hard anyway. And if you just work hard a little differently, everyone wins. Everybody wins. Including your clients, who oh, you're doing oh, a better absolutely. job for. Yes, so. absolutely. Everybody wins in that process. And, you know, I, I certainly think that anybody who is willing to step into an owner role, principal role, owner, you know, where, where you have an, an, a vested interest, you're, you know, when you really stop and think about it, um, you're really a small minority group of the entire industry. 
And it's because you were willing to take on that risk and you don't have, you know, your risk aversion is much less than other people. Some people are very, very happy just to, you know, sit in the office, do their work, and they want to go home at the end of the day and they don't want that responsibility. But that smaller minority group of, of people who are in ownership positions, they're there for a reason. And you need to use everybody's abilities and talents. You didn't invite somebody to be an owner because you didn't like them. And, you know, that's what you also need to remember in the process is if there begins to be this, uh, you know, crack in the harmony, <laughs> the harmony issue, you got to remember why you brought these people together in the first place. And truly, if somebody's misbehaving, you, you need to, you need to exit that person from that role because they're going to ultimately do way more harm than they ever did good. And I have seen that over and over again. And I have too. So <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for even sure. this additional bonus track, um, which if it's okay with you, I'm going to put that in because I think that, that, that is a key way to, to end this. I'll, well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.